Guys, we are in uh, a summer series on the Psalms. Uh, I love this graphic. I've told you before, I think this is my favorite graphic that Tim has put up. If you haven't pieced it together, you got Bono over there on the right, and you got the statue of David over there on the left. And we have brought together um, David, who wrote a little more than half of the Psalms uh, several thousand years ago, and Bono and the band U2, who uh, have maybe brought back a focus on the Psalms over the last 20 years uh, like nobody else has. Uh, we've talked about how much uh, the Psalms have influenced the work of U2 and Bono over these decades. And so Fuller Theological Seminary put together a project where Bono and a guy named Eugene Peterson had a discussion about the Psalms. Eugene Peterson has written 30 Christ, uh, Christian books, most of which are classics. Of course, his most renowned work is The Message. It's a full modern-day translation of the entire Bible. And we've been watching them have this discussion over the last few weeks. Other times, we've looked at outtakes uh, of this material. Outtakes of Bono sitting around with a professor from Fuller talking about what the Psalms and what God has meant to, to him. And so we're going to look at one of those outtakes this morning. So that's the first thing I, I want to make you aware of. And, and then we're going to dive into a psalm. Now, here's the second thing we've been doing all summer. Uh, we have, once we get into July and August, and we've been doing this for a few years now, we uh, move into preaching teams where I preach some of the Sundays, and, and some of the staff preaches some of the Sundays, and then we bring in speakers from other areas for a few reasons. Um, the first is, I think it's important for the church to hear more than one voice, um, so that, you know, that, that you're hearing from different people. Uh, I think that helps us grow as a community. Um, the second is, so you appreciate me more and more. Um, <laughs> just kidding, don't email, I'm just kidding. Um, the third is, uh, this morning as we gathered, uh, we were talking about the fight, and uh, Tim, Tim Berry said, can you believe that people actually thought that McGregor could walk in there and fight a guy? I mean, this is what this guy does for a living. He's the best at it. Nobody's better than him. He's been doing it for, for years and years and years. And do, do you know that they thought they could just bring this, bring this guy in, and he would be as good or better? And I said, well, that's what David Jensen feels like right now, as he's about to get up and speak for me. <laughs> And, and so uh, nobody really laughed at that, just like you guys. And then, uh, and then another person on the team said, is that what's going on? Because I thought these were just tryouts for the next pastor. Um, and so that one hurt a little bit, uh, but I guess I deserved it. So uh, David Jansen is going to be coming this morning, and he's going to be uh, sharing from uh, Psalm 4. Uh, I've had the privilege of sitting through this once, and this is really good stuff. But we start with Bono. Once again, he's our opening act. And today, Bono is talking about how he came. Uh, Bono's ministry, uh, his, which is through his music, was actually begun uh, at a weird place. It was begun at the graveside of his mom, who, uh, who died when he was a young man. I think she actually died at the grave of her father. So he was at burying his grandfather, and his mother died on the spot. Um, and it really changed his heart, and, and he started to operate, he realized he began to operate out of fear a lot. Fear was a driving mechanism in his soul. And as he came to know God, he wound up on a trip uh, in the Holy Land, and he went to Golgotha, which, uh, as, as many of you might know, is the place where Jesus was crucified. And uh, he said as he stood there, God gave him a concept about death and no longer needing to be afraid. And uh, so he has a great revelation here, and uh, David's going to come up and talk. And uh, when he does, David's going to share with us this concept of how to overcome fear. 
Um, but when he comes up, can I ask you guys, would you welcome him wildly? Uh, so, uh, like, I don't know what, what wildly means to you, but, you know, wildly. Uh, so, uh, here's Bono, and then David's going to come up. I became an artist through the portal of grief. Mm. My mother died at my, her own father's gravesite as he was being lowered into the ground in an aneurysm, I was 14. She left me, but she left me an artist. I began the journey, trying to fill the hole in my heart with music, with my mates, my bandmates. And finally, the only thing that can fill it is God's love. And it's a big hole, but luckily there's a big love. It's like the wound never quite closes. So death is very important. Mm -hmm. But you know, I went finally to Jerusalem on a family pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. And I went to Golgotha. And I went to um, the site where, and I had some time on my own, where death died. And I was like, wow, there it is. Mm -hmm. That's where death died. And so I don't really believe in it anymore. So it's not a, it has no power over me as it had when I was 14 years old. And it, and it's, you know, it's unpleasant for the people we leave behind or if we're left behind but it isn't unpleasant for the soul to now find its true meaning. Mm -hmm. You know, we look through the glass darkly, mm -hmm. but then we shall see face to face. I wear colored lenses. <laughs> I can't wait to get them off. Yeah. I want to see, I want to see straight. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's a, a large part of our psychology, you know, yeah. is fear of death. Yeah. So if, if you have that, dealt with, I think you can get on with life yeah, yeah. a bit easier. The person you really want to clap wildly for is my wife because she puts up with me. We have to be very thankful for that. That's just like... So good to be here today. And I just have enjoyed these, these Bono pieces. Uh, I wasn't as familiar with... I mean, this person has really been used by God to change a generation. I know to change the church, to change culture. And, and here he is with this series... This morning, as you look, he really talked about fear, the fear of death. And that in itself is huge. 
If this morning God would free you, free me, free us from just that fear, how powerful that would be. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to step a little bit behind, kind of as observers, but we're participants, and look at what does this tell us about God who brought Bono in his fear to a place where that fear would be relieved. And my piece on that is this. God is not a respecter of persons. And he loves you as equally as every other person. And he knows how to bring you and to bring me to that place where he can touch us and free us from that inner hurt and that inner distress. And today I'm going to use Psalm 4, verse 1. And in there is a powerful verse. It'll come in a few moments. But I want to begin with this. Have you ever been given a present, a gift, that was really nice, but you didn't know what to do with it? I'm not talking about repurposing. You know those things you get at Christmas time? You know, think, you know how many people has this really gone through? But you don't say that. But, I mean, a real gift. My wife, we were younger. My wife worked for a company for a week maybe a week, and the person was in the church, and they were like the United States experts on radio-controlled airplanes. Those are those things that are flying around. There's pre-drones. These things were out there. And they gave to Janine this huge plane, all prepped. You don't even have to assemble it. Motors, everything, and the controls. And they said, here, Janine, we like to give this to you. I didn't know my wife really liked radio control planes. But give this to you because this is our gift to you. So Janine turned around at the end of the day and said, Dave, I'd like to give this to you because I don't really know what to do with it. And I didn't even know you were interested in radio-controlled planes. I wasn't. I knew nothing about them. And so I had this thing. And like, what do you do with this thing? It's big. You can't sit on it. You can't cook on it. There it is. And I decided, you know, maybe, maybe I want to do something about it. This was the years before Google. So I, I figured out how you turn this thing on and put a little gas or whatever else you put in it and put in batteries in the little control thing and flip some switches. And I took it out to an airport, a little miniature airport. I found out where do the model airplane people take their planes. And it was like a little runway like this center aisle. So I took it out there Monday. I didn't go Saturday because that's when all the guys and gals would fly. I'd be totally embarrassed. So I went on Monday, my day off, where nobody was there. And I put this plane on the front of the runway. I got everything turned on. And I realized I know absolutely nothing about this. I am convinced that I may be able to get this thing off the ground. But I have no idea how it flies. And I know it will never come back in one piece because I cannot land it. And so I sheepishly took the thing, turned everything off, put it back in the car, went home and did my other Monday things. And then the next Monday came. And I got back out there and I said, this is going to be the day. I got it. I got it. I'm going to do it. Thought about it Sunday night before I went to sleep. Got to the same place and I realized again, David, you're being an idiot. Do you not know you can take this thing off? But that's it. It will not come back in one... It will be all over the airfield. 
three times, four times, five times, six times, seven times, psyched myself up all Sunday night after church. Yes, yes, I have courage. I am Jersey strong, though I'm living in Illinois. I can, that's a joke. I'm Jersey strong, even though I'm living in Illinois, and, and I can do this. I'm going to do this. I am not coming back as a failure. You know the end of the story. I got there, turned everything on. Sense came to me, and I said, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way I might have the joy of seeing that take off for three minutes. And then it's going to spiral out of control, and it'll never, ever survive. It's going to crash. So, graciously, I gave it to somebody else, and I pondered that experience. And I said to myself, I wonder how many times in life do we have these opportunities to put things up in the air? When we were born, little baby here, there was a little baby here. And that little baby, you get, you get born, took off somewhere. You get, you get a little baby, it's born. It's like you're, you're, you're positioned at the end of the runway and you start to take off. You breathe, you burp, you cry, other things, and you're off and you're going and everybody's there to help you. And then you grow up and you're in grade school and you're trying to do math, trying to do English and go through middle school and, and you find out there's all this stuff that like this plane, you're responsible to take off, hope it stays stable, and hope to land it somewhere creatively. But it gets more serious as you go on. You have this thing called marriage sometimes. More fun to start that plane off down the runway. It's another thing to keep it stable, and it's a third thing to land it in good places once in a while. Maybe for you it's like a car. I, I love the idea of buying a car, but suddenly those car payments come up. Maybe it's getting your house or your first day at work. You know, I remember my first, I had this job on the boardwalk in, in Long Beach, Long Island. It was like three darts, you know, three, three attempts. Everyone's a winner. People just throwing darts, popping balloons, and everybody's a winner. Everybody got this, little, this record by Peter, Paul, and Mary. And like the, the first 20 minutes, it was cool because there I was on the boardwalk doing this. But after about three weeks, I just couldn't, I, I just hated it. It's one thing to take off on your first day of work. It's another thing to keep that plane in the air. It's the third thing to land it. And I know in my life, like that guy on the plane or guy there, I fly a lot of stuff. I take things off. I love courage. But there are times, honestly, I just realize I really don't know what I'm doing. You know, John's in the official workers and staff here. I don't tell my boss I don't know what I'm doing. But, like, we, we planted a church, a Chinese church, in Fort Lee via computer. A, I don't know Chinese culture that much. B, it was on a computer. C, how did it work? Went from 20 to 100 and some people. Now they have two pastors. I didn't have a program. I didn't know what I was doing. You think about marriage. You get in there. We've been married for 40 years now. All of a sudden, the plane's off the ground. A little bit of cloud formations, a little bit of air turbulence. What do we do? How do you keep it up in the air? How do you land it in great places? I realize that what I don't know is greater than what I do know. And I can't even say to myself, we're Jersey strong 
because I realize there's nothing but air underneath that. I'm not strong because I live in New Jersey. In fact, I'm weak. And I don't know what I'm doing all the time. And yet God is in the midst of doing all of this. So, so he says to us this word. He says that, that when we are weak, we're strong. I don't know if you can relate to this, but maybe you're here today. Don't raise your hands, but if you're married or you're in relationship, or you're looking for a new relationship, you got kids, and you say, I don't really know what I'm doing. Do I know how to be a dad? Maybe some of our dads left. Do I know how to be a mom? Maybe some of our moms left. Do I know how to do my job? Yeah, I can function. But if you really ask me, I realize how fragile this all is. That's not a bad place to be. Actually, it's a good place to be. Because it's, that's where God takes over. Because he says he doesn't share his glory with anyone else, including us. And so when I go to him and say, as the word says, if you cry out for wisdom just, and you need it, just cry out because he's there. So here you have this Bono guy who changes generations and all of this cool stuff. And, and on this video, he's really honest. I was honest with you. I don't know what I'm doing. Go into a church conflict. I don't have a, like a little pad of things to do. I just let the Holy Spirit come in and, and help, and things happen. And, and so all of a sudden I hear Bono, who's changed our generation, changed the church in ways that I don't think the church even understands. Because I've lived through it. I've seen the change. And he's saying, you know something? I was afraid of death. Anybody here this morning afraid of death? No, not here at Mendo. <laughs> Yeah, what happens? It's like going down, the, going down the runway at birth like the little babe, getting up in the air for a while, but you don't even know where the landing zone is. They just tell you about it. And Jesus said, don't worry about it. It's all chill. I'm going there to place a landing zone for you. And you got some pretty cool houses out there. Don't worry about the lottery. I got better stuff. And, and so you, you recognize that. But right now we have fear. Is that normal? Yes, it's normal. Paul, I think, called it, he called it the last enemy. It's a big, bad enemy, but it's conquered. And for him, he had this huge fear, and this is the peace for us this morning. And so he goes, and as he goes, he finds out he takes his trip to Jerusalem, and I believe it was a big surprise to him, because this is how God works. He gets there, and he sees the place where Jesus died, and suddenly it hits him. And I tell you, what hit him was more than just the physical coolness of being at a tourist destination. God ministered to him at that one point of intense fear within his life. And you know something this morning? That gives me such courage. Because that is the God in whom we serve. He is the God who meets us before we even know we're going to be met and knows how to care for us. Psalm 4, verse 1, hit me so hard. If we could get that up, 
English Standard Version. Look at this with me for a moment. And the psalmist says, and this was sent immediately, it's one of those titles that says, send us immediately to the head of the worship team because this one is going to speak and is inspired by David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. And this is it. You have given me relief when I was in distress. I notice it doesn't say, you will give me relief. That's a lot of the Psalms. It's like, God, I'm miserable. Everything's a mess. People are trying to kill me. I'm in a dangerous place. I'm a little mad at you. I don't know where my friends are. Everything seems up in the... I don't even know where your promises are. To now he gets to speak and says, past tense, you've given me relief. When I was in distress... Catch this. It doesn't say you've given me relief from my distress. I think a lot of us want relief from our distress. But here in the word, in just the way God does things, he says, no, 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 no. You're going to have distress in life. But, But guess what? I am your relief. In the midst of that distress. Oh really? Is that who you are God? You don't know the distress I've been in. The word in the original language of distress. I don't know if anybody saw the movie Dunkirk. But actually this is a pure military term. And, and in that military term. In the, in the Hebrew language. What it, it talks about being surrounded by an army that is uncontrollable, that is pressing in on you, just like those forces around Dunkirk. And suddenly the relief came and bam, you were out of there. So as in that movie, they were expecting 350,000 deaths or something, and it wound up being only a tenth of that. Here you see, if we could use this, you have given me relief when I was in distress. you ever feel like the world's closing in on you? Your finances closing in on you. Problems at work closing in on you. Things your extended family closing in on you. Stuff around your life closing in on you. Maybe we feel inside us we're closing in on ourselves. Distress. You know, in a room like this, even as believers, as men and women who know the Jesus thing, I know there are people in this room, I don't know you personally. But people who wake up in the morning and say, I don't, I don't like myself. If you're really honest, you might even stand and say, I hate myself. I hate who I am, I hate what I've become. I am in distress because of my past. Stuff happened. Stuff does happen. Incredibly serious, heart-breaking things that allow distress to be a huge reality. You talk to them and I talk to them. Then there are people who are in distress in the present. And people who are in distress about the future. You know, in our world, sometimes we feel like, oh, man, I'm just distressed. My, my brother-in-law, I love my brother-in-law, Bob, Janine's sister, Denise. We've been 
buddies all our lives. Bob says whenever you get a new car, bang, you can count on the next, in that month, to have something go to it. The ding and the dong, whatever it is, bang, it's messed up. And it, it's like almost a fear. It's like, a, it's, it's my car. It's my house. Poor Bob, Janine doesn't even know this. He's fixing his house like yesterday, John. And he, he, he pulls out a, a piece of the, the siding. There's a snake in there. And he thinks it's dead. And it's, it's alive. And it doesn't like Bob. And it's coming after Man, that would give me enough distress for the whole day. And, and Bob's, Bob's, I won't go into that. Uh, so anyway, the, 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 his distress was something in the presence. It's your house. It's your car. It's your job. It's all of this stuff that could happen. I'm too tall. I'm too small. Yeah, I saw someone yesterday. He's seven foot. I kid you not. And she's at six two. And I'm like five eight shrinking at this time in my life. And I am like, where, what happened to him? And like, you know, I'm too tall, I'm too small, my ears are this way. You know, we think of all this stuff, and I'm not like my brother and my, my sister. And, and, and all the distress that can happen. And you know a lot of the outside stress? It's just a symptom of the inside stress. Elijah was scared of this lady named Jezebel. Because she wanted to kill him. Well, what was he doing up on the mountain with all those, those priests and prophets who were sharpening their blades? But there was some soul care need in Elijah that the external thing was a reflection of the internal. And he ran for his life. You know, the other day, Janine and I were in Manhattan, a few more, and we were in Manhattan, and, you know, scripture, one of the things that Bond talks about, it's like defending the defenseless. We walked into a store, Starbucks, and we walked in, and there was a, like two people talking at the counter. And then the one person said, what's your name? And the person behind the counter said, Myra. And then the lady walked out. And then we were the next ones. We didn't hear the conversation. But I'm like, hey, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Was that a good Myra or a really hard Myra? She put her head down. She goes, that was a really hard Myra. I said, why? She said, because that person just railed on me because last week their latte wasn't on time and their little sandwich took an extra couple minutes. You know, people behind the counter can be very vulnerable. And so that lady, and I'm not coming in to rail on whoever, the man, whoever it was, came railing in on that person. But I think sometimes the external railing that we hear is really an internal need that hasn't been met and dealt with. And I can take advantage of somebody. So Janine and I were able to just say, hey, you know something? Whatever that's, forget about that. Because that's not who you are. And we were able to speak some life into her. And that's what we're called to do in this whole thing in this verse. Because this verse, when we bring it back, this verse says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Do you ever think that sometimes we're the ones of whom God gives relief to people who are hurting? Say, like, can God do that with me? Yes. His word says that each man and woman will be like a shelter from the wind. The prevailing wind that wipes us out. And his word says that somehow we're like protectors. And that we can help. And in a situation, I just like, imagine if everybody in Mendham just said, you know, wow, I'm just going to be out there protecting the defenseless. And, and speaking good words of life when somebody else has inadvertently said some tough parts of life. But in this, we find that this distress is part of us. What's your distress? Did that happen? 
did happen. I don't know what it is. Maybe dad left. Maybe mom left. Maybe you went through the horrific victimization of, of abuse, verbal, sexual, physical. I know guys that never knew their dad. It's hard. It's real. It's distress. And that internal distress can move with us. The question is this. Can God, does God care to meet us at our point of deepest distress? And can he do something about it? And does he care enough about us to do something about it? And what I would say to you is everything, every bone in my body, every experience I've had says yes. Even in our trouble. Even when we believe we've messed up. He redemptively is there. And redemptively there to bring us to a place of understanding what he's doing. And so the psalmist says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. In distress. Sometimes we don't even know we're in distress. We keep on our devices because as long as there's music and, and words and talk in my ears that, that, that I don't have to get quiet enough. But when I get quiet enough, when I'm super quiet, suddenly the distress starts to bubble up. I don't want it to bubble up. Maybe today say, I don't like myself. Is there any hope for me? Does Jesus even care? Yes. You're his son. You're his daughter. He loves you with an everlasting love. His eyes are never off you. You say, I don't have enough distress in life. So, well, you can go on the news and get distressed. You don't feel like you're distressed enough. You know, I woke up this morning, I told John, I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning. And, and I hit the headlines before I did some time in studying the word. 5 o'clock in the morning, I hear that there are 350,000 salmon that escaped during the solar whatever it was, and scooted out into the, into the Pacific Ocean. That was the headlines. That's a crisis. They want me to be in distress about that. I'm like happy for the salmon. <laughs> because they weren't stupid. Suddenly the gates came down because the solar thing wasn't working. And they took off. And you know, you're not going to find them again. They're asking fishermen to go find them. they got to find them. They're having the time of their lives. God knows how to set us free too, doesn't he? Amen. the gates come down and off we go. But there's always some distress. I, you know, just when we were doing that eclipse thing and the, and the country was happy. I, there's a picture on the news of our president looking up without glasses. I'm like, no, don't do that. That's like everything the government's been telling us not to do. So there's, there's always distress. Because we're supposed to be in distress. But God says this, you have given me relief when I was in distress. So how do I do that? How do I do that? Does he want to do that? Let me ask you a question. Serious question. How does God get your attention? Seriously. How does he get your attention? Well, he doesn't. <laughs> okay. If he could, what would he do? Because <laughs> he probably is, but we just don't know it. 
How does he get your attention? Paul gets knocked off a horse, goes blind. Or there's a disciple who, or a believer who, who, who comes and says, I need to pay my taxes. And, and Jesus says, well, just go down to the stream and go down the stream. And the first fish you find has got this enormous, one of the escapees, I bet, huge coin in its mouth, and you'll be able to pay all your taxes. And this guy's blind, and Jesus spits and takes a little dirt, mushes it, puts it on the eyelids. And then the Bereans, they study the word of God. And then to the Israelites, I want you just to walk around that problem called Jericho six times on the same day. I want you to blow your kazoos. And suddenly all the walls fall down. You see, what happens is God gets people's attention in different ways. There's the word. An errant, wonderful word speaks to us all the time. But there's some of us that God gets our attention with a still small voice, or you come in and you find out that Pastor John or the team is speaking exactly your need, or you hear from God through other people, or open doors or closed doors, or you find out the circumstances just roll in a moment of time. Or for some of you, it's just like, I just got myself out on the airport with that plane and I don't know how to do it. God, what do, what do I do? And he says, if you cry out for wisdom, I give it to you. But how does he get your attention? You say, David, I don't know if he wants my attention. He does. He does not love Bono more than he loves you. But Bono's done all this. It's not based on what you do. But Bono's, it's not based on that. But his interview, it doesn't, it's not based on that. Sure, he loves him because he's doing more for, the, for me. No, 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 no. He loves you. But I messed up. Everybody messed up. Paul killed a couple people. Moses killed somebody. Paul was in jail a lot, too. Didn't, didn't stop God's love. There's something we can do to mess up so much that he just says, forget about it. He loves you, and he wants to communicate. A.W. Tozer said, God is never silent. He's not chatty, but he's never silent. And did you know in one inner touch from God in your soul, can change the trajectory of your life for the rest of your days. Just a little whisper in your soul where God says, I love you. I've always loved you. I knew you as a little girl. I knew you as a young boy. I knew what happened to you. And I'm here to redeem and to love you. I'm here to give you relief in the midst of your distress. So you give this time. How do we find that time? So much is going on. How do I, how do I release myself from dancing with the stars or whatever it is and the cooking shows and, and all of this? How do I just, I don't like being quiet because when I get quiet, I've got to deal with it. But dealing with it, it's the most beautiful thing for you and for me. 
You say, well, well, why would God want to deal with it? He's God. He's really holy, and I'm this and that. You know something? Here's a good phrase. God really loves being God, and he's really, really good at it. He's not sitting up there saying, I don't know what to do with him or her. <laughs> he's got the councils of the angels figuring it out. You know, what do you do with Dave, you know? He's got sitting with that RC plane. He doesn't you know. No. So how do I do I, I got to get quiet. I, I, I get quiet, and, and I, I live. I live for him. As I'm living for him, you find out, because I've lived a few years. I got a little of this gray hair. That, that you will find that, that you will run right into God, even if you're running away from him. Elijah, the prophet. Jezebel speaks death to him. He's running. He's running into the desert. You've been in the desert? Not in a car, but just hoofing it around with your feet. It's really hot. And he told his servant to stay. He was trying to kill himself. Didn't bring any food and water. Running out in the desert. Who does he run into? A bunch of angels say, here, you just got this from McDonald's. It's really good. And he's taken care of. And, and he finds and he runs right into God. You mean when I'm running, he loves me enough to run right into him? Yeah. I knew an astronomer, a guy who was an astrophysicist from Australia getting a postdoctorate at, at Penn State University. And we're talking. And he looked at me. He knew I was, I guess he knew I was a believer. I don't know. And he looked at me. He goes, you know something? He goes, I have never in my life even once considered the reality of God. I don't know. I'm supposed to clap for that. I don't know. I was like... I'm like, okay, that's cool, yeah, that's right. And then we went on something else because that wasn't the time to, to go after that. And he started his schoolwork. He came back two weeks later and he said, hey, David. He goes, you won't believe what happened. I go, what? He goes, I think I ran into God. How'd you run into God? He goes, I was studying mathematics of the far-flung universe and how all of these things up in the... It's all equations. And he said, it was as if I walked across a desert, interestingly enough, and I walked across a desert. He said, I came, and I quote, to a city of mathematics that was so intense, I knew that some creative mind had to make it. Oh, yeah. Changed his life. You run from God, you can run right into him. I know a guy who was a, he was a teacher, of an atheistic system, I'll just say that, I, don't, I know this is being recorded, an atheistic system in some other country than the United States, who wasn't just a proponent of this system, but he was a teacher of those who taught others. Big league, big league, going to one of our churches, very excited about atheism, very excited to talk you into it, except he went into a diabetic coma in a building that was pretty abandoned, and there he was on the floor all by himself, in New York City, someone finds him after a couple hours. They take him to the hospital. And the doctor looks at him when he opens his eyes and says, do you realize if they didn't find you for another 30 minutes, you'd be dead? That guy came back to church. And he said, my atheism's done. I'm a believer now. God saved my life and I knew it. And so people can run from God, and they run right into him. So how do I do this? I, I get quiet. I learn to listen to him. I had a young pastor, different district. I was kind of mentoring him, and I'm like, 
I'm like, Fred, his name isn't Fred. I said, Fred, I said, do you ever hear from God in that still small voice? He goes, yeah. I said, what do you do with it? Nothing. Like, really, nothing? Why nothing? I don't know. Well, did you ever think that God was trying to get your attention and that those weren't just suggestions, but actually feeding into the path going forward? Today he's a pastor of a huge church in our district because he started to listen because he knew and started to believe that God had a specific relief for his distress. Here it is, closing in, coming in a closing here. And so sometimes what God asks us to do doesn't make sense. It's not what the world does. It's not what we want to do. Like maybe he says, forgive your spouse. I don't want to do that. Take out the trash. I really don't want to do that. Pick up life socks. I don't really want to do that. Forgive that person. Protect the defenseless. Stay at your job. Leave your job. Give. Care. You come to God and there's a, a, a path. There's like a, a fork in the road. And, and you're wondering, what do I do? And you go and you ask God. And he speaks into your heart and you have good divine counsel around and you see it as word. And, and even though you don't understand it, you say, I'm going to do it. Because he's there. You know, a lot of times he doesn't let us know how he's going to fulfill the promises he gives us. He just says, believe him. Just believe him. Peter, you want to believe in me? Then jump out of the boat. He didn't say, well, let me give you the, the graphics behind that and all the gravity and I'll be able to do this with physics. Just, just jump out of the boat. So we jump out of the boat. We cross the sea. We go around a town six times and then blow a whistle. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Well, I, if I don't see it, I can't do it. Well, he calls us to step by faith. And, and, and suddenly, if I could get this next piece on here, I realize in my life, if I could get the, the flight, the, first of all, you're doing a great job, the, the flight deck on that big airplane. And, and I realized for a moment that, that my life isn't this little airplane sitting on a runway that could crash or not, but, but really what it is, it's this. It's this mega thing. I have this nightmare. I don't understand it, but it's this nightmare about once a year I get. I didn't play football my whole life, but I have this silly dream that for some reason I'm in with the Penn State football team running out of the gate ready to play, and for some reason, I'm the quarterback. And I, <laughs> I'm telling I'm like, everybody's this big again. And I'm like, so if you're a doctor, please help me. But, but I'm, like, I'm like, hey, guys. I said, I, I really don't know how to do this. I said, I can't even throw football. My hand's so small. I said, I don't know anything. I don't know any place. This is a real mess up, and I don't know how I got here. So can I just leave right now? And I go running off the field. And not to everybody's success, but I think it would be the same as this. What if you wound up in this right now? Some of you know how to fly. Some of you don't. I don't. But you sit in that left seat right there. And you figure out, how am I going to keep this in the air? How am I going to land this? I'm going to tell you a little story. Next slide, if I could. Because there is an airport in the world, in Hong Kong, 
that is one of the most challenging airports to fly in. First of all, this little candle. We are like that flickering candle so much in our life, and it seems so dark. And when that darkness comes, the light of God's word comes, and he goes, this is the way, go in it. And so we, we jump to the next slide, and we're looking for that light. Here is an airplane, Japan Airlines, true picture, and it is headed into old Hong Kong airport. I probably pronounced it wrong. But if you look at the top right, you see that little checkerboard thing? You see that little red and white checkerboard thing? That is what that plane has to fly towards. But here's the problem. It's at the base of a mountain you can't see. So the only way into this airport is to say, I am going to have confidence that this is going to work out. Because something of authority tells me it's going to work out. So what you do is you put your flaps down, got the flaps down, got the wheels down, and you are zooming in on your final approach into Hong Kong Airport. You can imagine right now, everybody's got their seatbelts on. Maybe at this point they're saying all the, 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 the cabin crew sit down, buckle in for a flight. And so as you're headed into here, maybe 250, 70 miles an hour, headed straight to that checkerboard, or you will crash and you will not live. Next slide. All of a sudden, when it, you're at a certain point with that checkerboard, which may be right under that red piece right there, you bank right 90 degrees. You can't even see the airport, I would believe. So you're like headed into a wall. God, you've given me truth, but I feel like I'm headed into a wall. If I forgive that person, if I love my boss, if I work for you with, with all of my heart, if I just accept your love, I feel, like I'm, I feel like I'm headed into a wall. And suddenly the Lord says, turn right. 90 degrees. But we'll all fall out of the chairs. Do it. And so you turn 90 degrees like this ANA flight. And, and literally, at that moment, half a mile too soon, forget about it. Half a mile later, you're in the mountain. They make that right turn. And as they make that right turn, they're throttling down and, and scared out of their wits. My uncle did this once a week. And here's the plane just about to land in Hong Kong. Janine and I have been there. We've been on this flight. You can see how many people are having dinner at the table on the right and the left. You are going through the, the buildings. And there you have a small strip between buildings on your left, buildings on your right, and it's the water out there. And if you are not lined up correctly, you're nowhere. You're in the water. That's the end of it. But I believe they've never had an accident. Because they train their people. I ever wonder, God, when you speak to us from your word, when you ask me to do things like be here for that walk through the building, share in the ministry, care for that other church, defend the defenseless, believe you that the reason you have me at work is to defend that which is defenseless. That I can, in my marriage, lift off, allow you to keep us stable, and this plane will land. That I can trust in the Lord with all my heart, lean not on my understanding, in all my ways acknowledge you. 
and you'll land this plane. I close with this. Jesus looked just as intently as I'd be looking at you. And he said this. He said, I stand at the door. I stand at the door of the cockpit, which is usually closed and locked and only can open from the inside. And if anybody opens up, I'll come in and I'll sit down in the other seat and we'll do this together. I can tell you today with all of my mistakes and failures and whatever that the reason anything happens in my life including marriage and parenting and ministry is because at some point I just invited Jesus and I invited him to come in and land this plane together. Let's take a moment of quiet. Just still your heart. As the worship team comes, I want to ask you a question. If God could give you relief starting today, what would it be? Say, I don't know. Say, Lord, show me my distress. Bring it to the surface. Just ask him right now. Just ask him. Lord, what is my distress? What is the pain that you're seeking to care for and relieve? The worship team is here. Let him speak, because I'm sure that there'll be some people here that God can be very specific. You say, I haven't heard from him before, but in the next 20 seconds, you could potentially hear from him as clearly as you have ever heard in your life. But the first step is to ask him, Lord, where do I need your healing touch?